Chapter 13 How God Loved the World For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have eternal life. John chapter 3 verse 16 God has given me that verse of Scripture for my next text, which, I suppose, has been used for the salvation of more people than any other verse in the Bible. It is John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thousands of people have been saved by that wonderful verse. Tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands, by simply reading it in the Bible, seeing it painted on a wall, or having it presented to them on a piece of cardboard. If there were time, I could tell you of a boy who started to read the Bible through and was brought under deep conviction of sin. As he read on and on, he came to the New Testament and to the Gospel of John, to the third chapter and the sixteenth verse, where he read, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the moment he saw it, he saw Christ on the cross for his sins, his burden all rolled away, and he found peace. I hope that hundreds will be converted through my text. This text tells us some important things about the love of God. It tells us that our salvation begins with God's love. We are not saved because we love God. We are saved because God extends His love toward us. Our salvation begins with God's extending His love to us, and it ends with our loving God. God's love is extended to all. The first thing our text teaches us about the love of God is that the love of God is extended to all. God so loved the world, not some part of it, not some elect people, not some select class, but God so loved the world. God extends His love to the rich, but God extends His love to the poor just as much as He does to the rich. If one of the wealthiest men or women of this city should come and accept Christ when I give the invitation, many of you would be greatly pleased. So would I, for the rich need to hear the gospel just as much as the poor, and they are not as likely to do so. But if some poor man should come, some man who doesn't have a penny or a place to sleep tonight, and receive Christ, many of you would not think it amounted to much. But God would be just as pleased to see the poorest man or woman accept Christ, as He would be to see the richest millionaire that you have in this city accept Him. God extends His love to the educated, but God extends His love to the uneducated just as much. God extends His love to the great scholar, the man of science, the university professor and the student, but God extends His love to the man who can't read or write, just as much as He extends His love to the most brilliant scientist or philosopher on earth. If one of your university professors was to be converted, some of you would be delighted. You would say, Oh, a wonderful thing happened. One of our learned professors was converted. But, if some man or woman who can't even read or write accepts Christ, some of you would not think it meant much. 
but God would be just as pleased as he would be over the conversion of that university professor. But the most wonderful thing of all is this. God extends his love to the moral, the upright, the virtuous, and the righteous, and God just as truly extends his love to the sinner, the outcast, the abandoned, and the immoral. He extends his love to the bad and the good. God commendeth his own love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. I was preaching one night in the city of Minneapolis. It was a hot summer's night, so hot that all the window frames had been taken out at the back to let a little fresh air in. The room was packed. Way down at the back of the room, a man was sitting where the window frame had been taken out, and when I gave the invitation for all who wished to be saved that night, and told them to hold up their hands, that man sitting in the window raised his hand. But as soon as I pronounced the benediction, he started for the door. I forgot all about my discussion after the meeting. I don't know to this day what became of that discussion. All I saw was that man starting for the door, and I hurried after him. I caught him just as he turned to descend the stairway. I laid my hand on his shoulder as he turned the corner. I said to him, My friend, you held up your hand to say you wanted to be saved. Yes, I did. Why didn't you stay then for the second meeting? He said, It is no use. Why? I said, God loves you. He said, You don't know who you are talking to. I said, I don't care who I'm talking to. I know God loves you. He said, I am the meanest thief in Minneapolis. Well, I said, if you are the meanest thief in Minneapolis, I can prove to you from the Bible that God loves you. I opened my Bible to Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and read, God commendeth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I said, if you are the meanest thief in Minneapolis, you are certainly a sinner, and that verse says that God loves sinners. It broke the man's heart and he commenced to weep. I took him to my office and we sat down, and he told me his story. He said, I am just out of confinement. I was released from prison this morning. I had started out this evening with some companions that I knew had committed one of the most daring burglaries that was ever committed in this city, and by tomorrow morning I would either have had a big stake of money or a bullet in my body. But as we were going down the street, we passed the corner where you were holding that open-air meeting. You had a Scotsman speaking. My mother was Scottish, and when I heard that Scottish tongue, it reminded me of my mother. The other night in prison, I had a dream about my mother. I dreamed that my mother came to me and begged me to give up my wicked life, and when I heard that Scotsman talk, I stepped up to listen. My two pals said, Come along, and cursed me. I said, I am going to listen to what this man says. Then they tried to drag me across the street, but I would not go. What that man said touched my heart, and when you gave the invitation to the meeting, I came, and that is why I am here. I opened my Bible and showed that man from the Bible that God extends his love towards sinners. I showed him how Christ had died for sinners and how he could be saved by simply accepting Christ. And then and there, he did accept Christ.
We knelt down side by side, and that man offered one of the most wonderful prayers I ever heard in all my life. Is there a thief here? God extends his love to you. Is there a pickpocket here? God extends his love to you. Is there a lost woman here? God extends his love to you. Is there an infidel here? God extends his love to you. Is there a blasphemer here? God extends his love to you. I will tell you something you can't find in all the city. You can't find a man or woman that God doesn't offer his love to. God's love is holy. The second thing our text teaches us about the love of God is that it is a holy love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Many people cannot understand that. They say, I cannot see why it is that if God loves me, He doesn't forgive my sins outright without His Son dying in my place. I cannot see the necessity of Christ's death. If God is love, and if God loves me and loves everybody, why doesn't He take us to heaven right away without Christ dying for us? The text answers the question. God so loved, so loved. That so brings out in what way that God loved the world. It was of such a character that God could not and would not pardon sin without an atonement. God is a holy God. God's love is a holy love. God's holiness, like everything in God, is real. There is no sham in God. It is real love, real righteousness, and real holiness. And God's holiness, since it is real, must manifest itself in some way. Either it must manifest itself in the punishment of the sinner, in our eternal banishment from him, in your ruin and in mine, or it must manifest itself in some other way. The atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary was God substituting His atoning action, whereby He expressed His hatred of sin, for the punishment whereby He would have expressed the same thing. But some man says, That is not just. The doctrine you teach is that God took the sin of man and laid it upon Jesus Christ, who was innocent, and that is not just. Well, that might not seem just, but that is what the Bible teaches, and that is what I teach. No ordinary man could have died for you and me. It would have been of no value. But Jesus Christ was the second Adam, the second head of the race, the second person, your representative and mine. When Christ died on the cross of Calvary, I died in Him through my faith in Him, and the penalty of my sin was paid. The philosophy of the atonement as laid down in the Bible is the most profound and wonderful philosophy the world has ever seen or heard. The Christian doctrine is a perfect whole. If you take out one doctrine, the others are irrational. But if you put them all together, they are a perfect system. For example, if you become a Unitarian and remove the deity of Christ, the atonement becomes irrational. If you remove the humanity of Christ and have Jesus Christ as merely divine, the atonement becomes irrational. But if you take all that the Bible says, that God was in Christ 
and that in Christ the Word became flesh, real man, God manifest in the flesh, then the atonement of Christ is the most profoundly and wonderfully philosophical truth the world has ever seen. God's love was a holy love. I thank God that it was. I thank God that His method was such that in perfect righteousness, perfect justice, perfect holiness, as well as perfect love, He could pardon and save the vilest of sinners on the ground of Christ's atoning death. And when you gain a proper sense of your sinfulness and see God as He really is, nothing will satisfy your conscience. Nothing can do that except the doctrine that God, the Holy One, substituted His atoning action whereby He expressed His hatred of sin for His punitive action whereby He would have expressed the same hatred of sin, and in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, your sin and mine was perfectly settled forever. Thank God the broken law of God has no claim on me. I broke it, I admit it. But Jesus Christ kept it, and having kept it, He satisfied its punitive claim by dying for those who had not kept it. On the ground of that atoning death, there is pardon for the vilest sinner. A man sits here and says, There is no forgiveness for me. Why not? Because I have descended deep into sin. Listen, men, you have descended deep into sin. You have gone deeper into sin than you realize yourself. But while your sins are as high as the mountains, the atonement that covers them is as high as heaven. While your sins are as deep as the ocean, the atonement that swallows them is as deep as eternity. On the ground of Christ's atoning death, there is pardon for the vilest sinner on the face of this earth. The Greatness of God's Love The third thing our text teaches us about the love of God is the greatness of that love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have eternal life. The greatness of God's love appears in two ways in the text. First, in the greatness of the gift He offers us, eternal life. It does not mean merely a life that is endless in its duration. Thank God it means that, but it means more. It means a life that is perfect and divine in its quality as well as endless in its duration is what is offered to you now. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have eternal life. I do thank God for a life that is perfect in quality and that will never end. Most of us will die before long, as far as our physical life is concerned. A large number of the eight or nine thousand people who are listening to my voice will be in their graves in a few months. More of us in a year, more in five, still more in ten, almost all of us in forty. Eighty years from today, there probably won't be a person on this earth who is here now, unless the Lord has returned. Well, you say, eighty years is a long time for you young people. No, it is not. It looks long to look forward to, but when you get to be forty-eight, as I am, and there are only thirty-two years of it left, 
It does not look very long. It looks very short. Eighty years doesn't look very long. And when the eighty years are up, what then? Suppose I had a guarantee today that I was going to live two hundred years in perfect health, strength, and prosperity. Would that satisfy me? No, it would not. For what happens when the two hundred years are up? Suppose I had a guarantee today that I was to live a thousand years in perfect health and strength and prosperity. Would that satisfy me? No, it would not. For what happens when the thousand years are up? Suppose I had a guarantee today that I would live on this earth for ten thousand years in perfect health and strength and prosperity. Would that satisfy me? No, it would not. For what happens when the ten thousand years are up? I want something that never ends, and thank God, in Christ I have something that never ends. Thousands of years will pass into tens of thousands. Tens of thousands will pass into millions. Millions will pass into hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions will pass into billions, and billions will pass into trillions. And I will be living on and on in ever-growing joy and glory. Eternal life. Who can have it? Anybody. Whosoever believeth on him. What does whosoever mean? Somebody asked a little boy once, What does whosoever mean? The little fellow answered, It means you and me and everybody else. Thank God it does. It means you and me and everybody else. Somebody, I think it was John Bradford, once said that he was glad that John 3.16 did not read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that John Bradford might have everlasting life. Because he said, if it read that way, I would be afraid it meant some other John Bradford. But when I read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him, I know that means me. Thank God it did, and it means everybody else too. I came here with a pocket, quite well filled with shillings, half-crowns, half-sovereigns, sovereigns, and checks that have come to me through the mail today. They are all gone. I handed them all over to the treasurer. But now, while I go out with an empty pocket, I will go out with a full heart a heart that is full of everlasting life, and that is worth millions of sovereigns. Every other man and woman can go out the same way. But the text tells us another more wonderful way in which the greatness of the love of God shows itself, and that is in the sacrifice that God made for us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, as I said before, the measure of love is sacrifice. You can tell just how much anybody loves you by the sacrifice that he is willing to make for you. God has shown the measure of his love by the sacrifice he made. What was it? His very best. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the dearest thing that he had. No earthly father ever loved his Son as God loved Jesus Christ. I have an only son. How I love him! My wife and I have often wished that God in His kindness had given us three or four sons, provided they were all like the one He gave us, 
just as he has given us four daughters. But this thought occurred to me this afternoon, that perhaps the reason God only gave us one son was that I might have a little deeper realization of how much God loved Jesus Christ. Suppose some day I should see that boy of mine arrested. Suppose we went as missionaries to China and I saw him arrested by the enemies of Christ. Suppose they blindfolded him, spit in his face, punched him in the face, braided a crown of big cruel thorns, and put it on his brow. And then some Chinese man came along and knocked that crown down on his brow until the blood poured down his face on either side. How do you suppose I would feel? Then suppose they took him, stripped his garments from him, took him to a post, made him lean over until the skin of his back was all drawn tight. Suppose they bound him to the post, and a soldier came along and lashed the boy's back thirty-nine times with a long stick that had long lashes of leather attached to it in which were twisted bits of brass and lead. Suppose he lashed him until he was all torn and bleeding and his back was one mass of bloody wounds. How do you think I would feel? Then suppose they laid a cross down upon the ground and stretched his right hand out on the arm of the cross, put a nail in the hand, lifted the heavy hammer, and drove the nail through the hand. Then they stretched his left arm on the other arm of the cross, put a nail in the palm of that hand, lifted the heavy hammer, and drove the nail through that hand. Then they put a nail on his feet, lifted the heavy hammer, and drove the nail through his feet. They took that cross to which he was nailed and plunged it into a hole on a rock and left him hanging there, the agony getting worse and worse every minute. I see him hanging there beneath the burning sun from nine o'clock in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon and watch as my only boy dies in awful agony on a cross. How do you suppose I would feel? But that is just what God saw. He loved His only begotten Son, as you and I never dreamed of loving our sons. He saw them spit in His face. He saw them blindfold Him. He saw them strike Him with their fists. He saw them beat Him with rods. He saw them take the crown of awful thorns, press it on His brow, and then smack it down with a heavy rod. He saw them strip the garments from His back, tie him to a post, make him lean over until the skin upon his back was drawn tight, and allow a brawny Roman soldier to scourge him thirty-nine times until his back was one mass of aching wounds. He saw them take him and stretch him on a cross, drive a nail into his hands, drive a nail into his feet, and take that cross and plunge it into a hole on that rock. He saw them leave him hanging there, aching, all his bones out of joint, tortured in every member of his body. God looked on. Why did he suffer this? Because he loved you and me. And it was the only way that you and I could be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. How are you going to repay that love? I know how some of you are going to repay it. You are going to repay it with hatred. 
You hate God. You never said it, but it is true. A friend of mine was preaching one time in Connecticut. He stopped by a physician who had a beautiful, amiable daughter. She had never made a profession of religion, but she was such a beautiful character that people thought she was a Christian. One night, after the meetings had been going on for some time, my friend said to this young lady, Aren't you going to the meeting tonight? She said, No, Mr. Hammond, I am not. Oh, he said, I think you had better go. She said, I will not go. Why, he said, don't you love God? She said, I hate God. She had never realized it before. I think she would have said she loved God up to that time, but when the demands of God were pressed home by the Holy Spirit, she was not willing to obey. She realized that she hated God. Some of you have never discovered that you hate God, but it is true. How some of you used the name of God today? You have used it many times. In prayer? No. In profanity? Why? Because you hate God. Some of you men, if your wives should receive Christ, you would make life unendurable. Why? Because you hate God. And you are going to make your wife miserable for accepting his son. Some of you young people, if some other young person in your shop, factory, or mill should accept Christ, you would laugh at them. Why? Because you hate God. Some of you people will read every secular book you can get or go to every secular lecture. You are trying to convince yourself that the Bible is not God's Word, and if anybody would come along and mention some smart objection to the Bible, you would laugh at it and rejoice in it. Why? because you hate God, and you want to get rid of God's book. Some of you love to hold up your heads and toss them and say, I don't believe in the divinity of Christ. I don't believe He is the Son of God. Why? Because you hate God, and if you can rob His divine Son of the honor that belongs to Him, you will do it. You are repaying the wondrous love of God with hate. Some of you are refusing to accept Christ. You attend a mission service night after night, but when people speak to you, you get angry. You say, I wish you wouldn't talk to me. Go about your own business. It is none of your business whether I am a Christian or not. You get angry every time anybody speaks to you. Why? Because you hate God. Some of you so bitterly hate God that you are trying to find fault with the doctrine of the atonement. You are trying to make yourself believe that Christ did not die on the cross for you. You say, I cannot understand the philosophy of it. If you loved God, you would not stop to ask about the philosophy of it. You would simply lift your heart in simple gratitude and praise to God that He so loved you that He gave His Son to die for you. Conquering Power of God's Love There is one other thing that our text teaches us about the love of God, and that is the conquering power of His love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have eternal life. The love of God conquers sin. The love of God conquers death. The love of God conquers wrong and saves a man from perishing unto everlasting life.
and the love of God conquers where everything else fails. The first time I ever preached in Chicago was several years before I went there to live. I was there at a convention after the sermon among the people who stood up that night to say they wanted to be prayed for. I noticed a young woman who did not come forward when the rest came. I went down to where she was standing and urged her to come forward. She laughed and said, No, I am not going forward, and sat down again. The next night was not an evangelistic service, but a meeting of the convention. I was president of the convention. As I looked over the audience toward the back, I saw that young woman, elegantly dressed, likely the most finely dressed woman in the audience. I called somebody else to the chair and slipped around to the back part of the building. When the meeting was dismissed, I made my way to where that young lady was sitting. I sat down beside her. I said, Won't you receive Christ tonight? No, she said. Would you like to know the kind of life I am living? It was not known that she was living that kind of life. She was living it in the best society, honored and respected. Then, she commenced to unfold to me one of the saddest stories of dishonor without blushing, laughing as if it were a good joke. Finally, she said, Let me tell you how I spent last Easter. I cannot tell you how it was, how any woman with any sense could have told it to any man I cannot imagine. When she had told the story, she burst out into a laugh and said, That was a funny way to spend Easter, wasn't it? I was dumbfounded. I simply took my Bible, opened it to John chapter 3, verse 16, passed it to her, and said, Won't you please read that? She had to hold it very near her eyes to see the print, and she began in a laughing way. God so loved, she was laughing no more, the world, there was nothing like a laugh now, that he gave his only begotten son, and she burst into tears, and the tears literally dripped onto the elegant silk robe that she was wearing. Hardened as she was, brazen as she was, shameless as she was, trifling as she was, one glimpse of Jesus on the cross of Calvary for her had broken her heart. God grant that it may break your hearts. I want to tell you of one more incident. One night I was preaching, and we had a discussion after the meeting. The leading soprano in my choir was not a Christian. I don't believe in having an unconverted choir member. We don't allow anybody in our choir in Chicago who is not a converted person to the best of our knowledge. You say, you must have a pretty small choir. We have two hundred, and every one of them, as far as we know, is converted. But in the church where I was preaching that night, it was not so, and my leading soprano was not a Christian. She was a happy worldly girl, but not really immoral. She was a generally respectable girl, yet very worldly, and yet mostly cheerful. She stayed for the discussion after the meeting. Her mother stood in the middle of the house and said, I wish you would all pray for the conversion of my daughter. I did not look around at the choir, but I knew perfectly well how that young woman looked without seeing her. I knew her cheeks were burning. I knew her eyes were flashing. And I knew that she was angry from the crown of her head to the soles of her feet. As soon as the meeting was over, 
I hurried to the particular door that I knew she would have to pass by. As she came along, I stepped toward her, held out my hand and said, Good evening, Cora. Her eyes flashed and her cheeks burned. She did not take my hand. She stomped her foot and said, Mr. Tory, my mother knows better than to do what she has done tonight. She knows it will only make me worse. I said, Cora, sit down. The angry girl sat down. I opened my Bible to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, and handed it to her. I said, Won't you please read it? And she read, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. She did not get any further. She burst into tears, for the love of God revealed in the cross of Christ had broken her heart. I left the city the next day. While I was away, I got a letter saying that this young lady was happily converted but very ill. I returned to Minneapolis, called at the house, and found her rejoicing in Christ, but so ill that the physician held out no hope of her recovery. A few days later, her brother came running up to my house in the morning about ten o'clock. He said, Mr. Tory, come to the house as quickly as you can. Cora has been unconscious all the morning. She has not spoken a word. She hardly seems to be breathing. She is as white as marble and we think she is dying. She seems to be utterly unconscious. I hurried back to her home, and there lay the whitest living person I had ever seen, bleeding to death through her gums and nose. She was unconscious, apparently, and had not said a word all morning. Her mother stood at the foot of the bed with a breaking heart. Oh, she said, Mr. Tory, pray, pray, please pray. I knelt down by the bedside and prayed. I didn't imagine the girl could hear a word I said. I was praying to comfort her mother. And just as soon as I had finished my prayer, the most wonderful prayer I have ever heard in my life came from those white lips in a clear, strong, beautiful voice. The dying girl said, O Heavenly Father, I want to live if it is your will, so that as I have sung in the past for my own glory, I can sing for the glory of Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, I want to live, but if you do not see fit to raise me up from this bed, I shall be glad to depart and be with Christ. And she departed to be with Christ. The love of God had conquered. Let the love of God conquer your stubborn, wicked, foolish, sinful, worldly, careless hearts. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. Yield to that love now. Amen.